Hey everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. Welcome back to Top Quartile. Uh, so excited to have David Hall on the show today. Uh, David, welcome. Dan, good to be with you. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. So to get started, give everybody a little background. Uh, you know, where have you been? What have you done? Where are you now? Those kind of things. Yeah. So I um it's kind of funny. I don't know that I don't know that most people like plan on a career in banking. Um, I think most of us sort of accidentally find ourselves in there. When I was in um uh, when I, so I grew up in Las Vegas, um, and I grew up right near the Air Force Base. So there were planes flying over all the time. And my my goal was to become an Air Force pilot, like a fighter pilot. So I thought, but you know, in order to get there, I needed to get a degree. So I went to school at UNLV. I started there. I was started in architecture um, and drafting. Uh, and I was like, I'll get my degree, and then I'll go to officer school, go from there. Well, in order to get myself through, I I, I got a job working part time at Bank of America as a part-time teller. And uh, and then, you know, as things kind of go, it, it took me a lot longer to finish my undergraduate than I had planned by the time I actually did finish and had that degree that I could go to officer school with. I had been in banking for almost 10 years at that point, married. And uh, my wife was like, uh, I didn't marry military, so that's not going to happen. So didn't end, <laughs> up, uh, didn't end up there, but thankfully it was fine because I really enjoyed what I was doing. At that point, I had um, so I spent about seven years with Bank of America down in Las Vegas. I, I got to work um, in the branches and the call center. It was really an amazing experience. Um, as we as we found out, we were having our first kid. Ended up moving um, up to Utah, uh, and I came up, spent one year with U.S. Bank, and then almost seventeen years with Zions Bank up here. Similarly, I, I got a chance. I started as a commercial lender, branch manager for Zions. Really enjoyed that that experience. Had the chance to move into the back office. And to me, I think that really set the tone for what has become a theme for my career is that the ability to bring together this, this element of front office, back office, there's, there's an appreciation that, that we can gain from understanding each other. Uh, but if we live only in one side of, of that space, uh, it's difficult to, to gain that appreciation. And it's really easy to be critical of, of those partners, even within the same organization. So. Anyway, did that for a long time, really loved it. I had the chance to do a lot of different things within the organization, technology, strategy, regulation, and operations, process improvement. It was really, really fortunate from that view. And then it was about uh, about five years ago, I um, was exposed to MX, out of, uh, also out of Utah. Uh, a colleague of mine from my MBA program was the CFO at the time. And uh, we stayed in contact and, and after we graduated and, and he says, hey, we got this thing that we're doing. I don't know if you're interested. Why don't you come down and check it out? And I, I'd been doing some really great things at Zines. I loved it, had a great reputation and, and had been given a lot of autonomy. I was really, really fortunate. I had some great leadership there that supported me. But there was something about after I talked to a couple of the people at MX, um, I was really fascinated by what was in front of it. And this, the basic concept was we needed to start um, what, what MX was doing was how do we start a, a client consulting professional services team that will help our clients better utilize the solutions they have with MX, help them get value out of it. Um, so we, we jumped into it and, and the whole process took what felt like forever to get through. Uh, finally, I sent an email over to, uh, I remember it was Nate Gardner at the time, he was chief customer officer. And I said, listen, Nate, I, I don't know what it is, but I haven't gotten the breakup email from HR yet. So I assume that Either you're, you know, you're down to me and one or two other people, 
And, uh, and you know, what, what, what is this? So we all probably have things you like and things you wish we had. So what do I have to do to be your top candidate? And it was interesting because at that point, like, I'm not the kind of person who I'm, I'm not the traditional entrepreneur. I would say I'm more of an entrepreneur. Like I did a lot of starting of new, new areas, new divisions, rebuilding areas. That was a lot of what my career had been up to that point. And so I never had like that bug that was like, I got to start my own company. And um, I really like the stability of a of a large organization, but I couldn't shake this for whatever reason. I just thought this is something I needed yeah. to do. So anyway, I shared that with him. We had a great conversation. Uh, he 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 immediately responded, had me in the office the next day, uh, and I think a couple of days after that, I had my offer and started working uh, right around uh, right around September of 2018. Uh, so I did that for five years, loved it. It was an amazing experience. I had the chance to meet people like you and many many others, financial institutions. Um, other fintechs, just a really tremendous experience um, through that. Um, but again, it, talking about sort of two sides of a coin, the traditional banking environment and then the fintech environment, I think that really uh, helped position me well for um, where I am now, which is I lead the digital experience um, and digital um, platforms for Bank of Hawaii. Uh, that came about, conversations there started in October of last year. Uh, and then I started uh, officially here um, middle of January. So it's been right about my, uh, 90 days. So three months now, um, really a great experience, great opportunity, but, but that appreciation of those two worlds and two experiences, uh, I feel like is what, what got me here. Nice. Well, we'll talk more about that. Um, so what's maybe one fascinating fact, uh, that most people don't know about you and maybe it's the military, maybe something else. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, that I wasn't military. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get there. That was fascinating. No, you know, it's interesting. I say this, uh, I, it's, it's probably more well-known than, than I suspect, but it's always, it always is a fascinating conversation topic, but I put in my LinkedIn profile, but I was a mobile wedding DJ in Las Vegas for about 10 years back in the nineties. Uh, and I actually was voted best mobile DJ for three years in a row, which was, which was a lot of fun. So it was weddings and parties and, um, minor club stuff, but it has always been, I got to meet some really cool people, um, got to be part of, you know, weddings are a big deal for, for people. And, and I got to be a part of that, uh, every weekend and it was just a lot of fun. So yeah, enjoy that. People always then invite me to like DJ the next party, but for some reason, those invitations never manifest. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your, as a, as a DJ, what was your, what's your favorite 90s song? Oh man, there are th- so like many. every '90s song. Yeah. yeah, you know what the one the one I will say that that was uh, um, that I really loved was I could mix um, "Right Round" uh, uh, yes. that uh, with with Sir Mix a Lot's "Baby Got Back," and I could I could mix those seamlessly into uh, into a dance club. And that was the thing. Like as as a <laughs> as a DJ, the thing you want to avoid is what they call a train wreck, right? So it's like you go from a really fast song to a really slow one, or you just miss the beats. So mastering that was was a subtlety, and it's one of those things where if you messed it up, people knew right away, uh, and often would harass you about it. You get the whole crowd to be like, "Oh, you messed that up." <laughs> but no, it was it was a ton of fun. That that was one of the things I really loved. Yeah. It, uh, so my my son has recently referred to. The '90s music as classic rock, and that oh. and that's uh, that you know that just warms. You better my, correct him on yeah, that. Yeah, it just warms my heart. You know, <laughs> no classic rock is from the '60s or '50s. You know, anyway. That's so, right. That's right. <laughs> um, anyway, that's what happens when you get old. Um, all right. Uh, so what's what's you know early there? What's what's growth been like at 
at uh, Bank of Hawaii? You know, it's interesting. I think like many regional and community banks, we're Bank of Hawaii is primarily focused on supporting obviously the local community, um, growth within our market. Um, and it's it's interesting in that I, I feel like in one of the reasons why I'm here and I chose to come to Bank of Hawaii is because of the opportunity that hit the that sits here. I think there's some true uniquenesses. And I and I say this and, and maybe I maybe I'm just delusional, but you know, I as I have the chance, as particularly at MX, you go out and you talk to banks, you talk to other community and regional financial institutions, and and they all say we're really unique in our market. And the reality was they were just a different flavor of the same thing. It really wasn't super unique, but they're all attempting to work out the same thing with minor nuances. I think that there actually is truly a difference here in that the market is really insulated. Like the gap between, you know, that gap of the Pacific Ocean between the mainland and, and the islands here is is real. Like there is not a massive presence of any regional or any national banks um, here on the island. And so the the support from a financial services perspective does fall. Um, squarely on the shoulders of the local financial institutions. And so, you know, from that perspective, it's definitely one where we have um, the opportunity to uh, really grow um, and and help finan- help the financial services and and the needs of of the community. So that that's a big focus. So you know Bank of Hawaii is in roughly half of the the residential you know all, all the, of the community were roughly, Half of the the homes, right, and and we want to continue to grow that, and um, it's not easy because that's the target of a lot of others. Sure, um, but the bank's been here for 125 years, has a good reputation, and so it's really about focusing on that. And so we really are primarily focused on expanding that, getting the right products and services, and and for me in particular in the digital space, uh, it's how do we bring the right um, capabilities to the community that are that helps them. There's also, you know, we, we don't have to go deep into this, but there's some there's some uh, interesting challenges in that we see the community and 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 people residents are starting to decline in terms of number because it's so expensive to live here. Um, and when you look at, I remember a couple of years ago there was um, a study that identified a teacher, for example, makes on average eighty thousand dollars a year, but median home prices were north of eight hundred thousand. So what do you do to help someone to be able to own a home? Um, they have a program um, that United Way supports or a, a, a study called Alice um, that really focuses on people who are um, who are actively employed and and capable, but even with multiple jobs are struggling to um, to be able to sustain uh, a household based on the income that they're making. So what you end up with is a lot of multifamily um, homes and a lot of people who are supporting um, each other or the other thing you find is they'll they'll try to find work even off island, um, especially in the in the world of remote work and how more prevalent that is. So that helps a little bit, but there's still a pretty massive gap, and I think it's amplified by the fact that um, that burden of helping from a financial service perspective, like I say, falls on the local um, financial institutions. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so you you started talking about the background. You you've been on both the bank side and the fintech side. Um, how did, well, how did MX prepare you for what you're doing now at BOA, BOH? You know, it's, it's, um, I think that there was, I'll, I'll say it goes both ways. I was the first banker that MX hired, yeah. um, yeah. In, in the time that they were there. And so bringing in the perspective of having been, I, I mean, I was in the seat of what, of the 
the person that MX was selling into, right? Sure. So here are the services that make the most sense. So I, I was familiar with that and being able to bring into MX inside an awareness of here's some other really important considerations we have to think about. How do we help solve problems in a different way? How do we not make assumptions about what capabilities exist in that, in that state, in that, in a financial institution, yep. a traditional um, FI? So that was one part of it. But then developing in, in our um, client consulting strategies, these repeatable services that really then helped fill the gap that addressed those things where if, you know, it's not enough to just take in MX's case, they cleanse data, they provide insights around the consumer and their behaviors based on transactions. Well, to be able to just give that, that cleanse data back to the financial institutions in many cases wasn't enough. Not a lot of financial institutions were really prepared to consume and then actually act on it to the point where you could, you could turn it into something measurable and turn it into revenue and, and better experience, better like proof points, right? So how do we actually get to a measurable or attributable KPI? So what I was able to develop and really test out with MX over and over again, and, and my team really broadly, I have to give a lot of credit to the, the rest of that Catalyst team that we were a part of, is we were able to develop solutions and strategies that worked, that we were able to then go validate and work against to the point where we could talk to financial institutions and give them pretty high assurance around the value and, and the, the return that they're going to get on the investment they made with us. That experience really, I mean, in a concentrated way, I was able, we were able to really test it out and prove those theories out. So now being here at, at, at Bank of Hawaii, we have the chance to execute that and actually put it into practice. We know the, you know, the ability to get in and understand what the current state is, identify what that North Star is, where are we trying to get to, and then, and then build the plan uh, in between to help us get there. And the interesting part about it is, right, you have to assume you know this, we, we can't, it, it's not like we just run at it and, and be done. It's an element of, there's a lot of other influences. I mean, just look at what's happened in our markets in, in the last 90 days, in the last 60 days. That's, that's having a major impact on how and what we choose to invest in. So once you build the roadmap, it can, it can flex based on how much we want to invest in it or what capabilities we have, yep. what's the timeline in which we need to execute those things. Um, but it's important to have the roadmap established. Where are we headed? Where are we at? What gaps do we experience? And then how do we fill that in? Um, that's really the great thing. And I'll say that at Bank of Hawaii, again, one of the reasons I came here is the ability to, to actually affect in a meaningful way the community. But also Bank of Hawaii has made the right investments. They have the tools in place. They have really talented, um, we have really talented team members who are who understand what we can do. And and now it's just a matter of aligning those in the right way to achieve the objectives. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned the last 90 days. You know, what, what do you see in consumer behavior? Um, you know, there's been some fundamental changes, but then there's some, you know, maybe cyclical type changes. What, how do you, how do you think about just understanding that and, and its impact on the, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting in that if you, if we take a look and maybe take a step back a little bit and, and look kind of more broadly at this, the majority of the buying power right now is concentrated in generations. Um, you know, we as Gen Xers still have a little bit of influence in that. You got millennial and you've got the next sort of Gen Z that's starting to come into this. And that buying power is in these generations that have really never experienced this kind of environment, right? Economic or rate environment before in their adult lives. So it's, so it's all really new to them. And I think that what contributes to that is like, and, and, and that would be enough to, 
to there, there's a real there's probably a really great case study in trying to figure that out and how will they respond and a lot of it is about upbringing all right like how, how will they how they how will they act um and then what but what adds to that is the actions that the federal reserve is taking the government is taking to handle these things like uh just some of the actions they took relative to the the bank failures that happened you know within the last several weeks that's significantly different than anything that's been done in the past the efforts to stem inflation and to manage um, against that with increased rates has not resulted in what they predict and what they suspected. So I think there's a number of things that are influencing and changing what we believe to be, historically at least, um, pretty predictable and reliable outcomes. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that consumers are acting differently. The environment is different and how people interact with their money and interact with each other and interact with services. I think it's having, um, not, it's, I think it's still to be determined, like the real true impact of this. But I think when, when the Harvard Business Review puts their case study together for this one, I think it's going to be, I think we're going to find there's a lot of, um, consumer behavior that was not fully understood that has had a significant impact on it. What those things are. I don't, I can't say that I, that I, I can't say with confidence, I'm not going to bet the house or bet the farm on, on what those things are. But, but I do know that the way people choose to interact with services, um, is significantly different than how it is, how it has been in the past. I think the fact that we have generations now who have grown up completely in the internet age, in the age of, you know, cell phones and smartphones and, you know, app driven services, I think is, has really changed the way, um, that we think about these things. The other is, the the increase in in um individuals who are working in a way that that work that is different like i don't need to work for an employer i can work for myself i can be a nomad and work from anywhere there's wi-fi like those are those are things that never were possible before yet allow people to continue to be employed they've managed their life in such a way that i think that like we've talked about those rates just don't affect them in the same way so it just causes us to think differently about it. And I'm curious just as much as you are to the answer to that question. I don't know what it is yet, but I can see all of these other things that, that I believe have, have created um, a lot of the unknown that even the smartest people are like, I don't know why it's not working or why this isn't responding the way that we've always seen it in the past. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of, there's, there's some longer term changes like you talked about. And then of course there's the, you know, the interest rate shocks and all those things. So uh, yeah. A very smart person observed, you know, history rather re- rarely repeats, but a lot of t- it oftentimes rhymes. I thought that was a great way to <laughs> think about it. I like, yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah, and I claim no credit in for the it. repeat. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great because that's exactly what I think. That's I love that because I think that it, that aligns because we know what we think, but it's not, it's, you know, the words are different this time. So we don't, we don't, we can't fully predict it. Yeah. I think that's going to be interesting. Well, and so maybe one of those changes, how do you think about kind of the intersection of media channels and then the sales and service channels? You know, I really, Dan, I love this question. I think it's really smart because it, it gets to the core of, of exactly what, like the, what we were just talking yeah. about, there is there are behavior changes. Like we we talk a lot about needing to meet customers where they yeah. are, and and I think that um, when we think about um, what is you know the media channel, sales and service channels, 
Like I can't tell you, I'm one of those people who I, I go for the ads in Instagram and TikTok all yes. the time. Like I, I, I've probably bought, I've probably bought three or four things in the last month that I, that I found on TikTok or Instagram. So to me, and, and I, and I'm not like, I, I wouldn't be considered sort of the target necessarily. Right. So the, the convert, I think there's a convergence of that media and sales and service. And it's happening now in terms of like what I just talked about. People are using media channels interspersed with um, service and, and retail sales and those sort of things to bring it together. And I think what's happening is that creates an expectation that when someone goes to that piece of glass, whether it's their, their computer, their primarily their phone, iPad, whatever it may be, that experience is something that they want to see happen in all areas that they consume. So if they are coming to their bank through their phone, they want to have a similar experience. They want it to be familiar. They want it to be yeah. easy. And, and frankly, we need to adapt to that and stop thinking about it from the view of, well, this is how we think it should be. Here's really where, where we have to understand what is it they're looking for and what are we trying to get um, those consumers to do? If, if it feels valuable to them and if they feel like we know them, then we're going to get that adoption. They're going to be right where we need them to be. But it's, it's a, it feels, I don't know. I think part of me is like, it feels like it's a pretty simple um, approach. But it's extremely challenging and complex to get there from where we are today. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's it's one thing that just and I think it makes it complex because it requires that we think differently about what we've always done. And there's a bit of discomfort and a bit of fear in moving into a space in which we don't know what the predictable outcomes are going to be. And I think some institutions are much happier with their one to three to five percent, you know, lifts because they know it's predictable, they know what to expect. Whereas if if there's something that they could get them 10, 15, 20% response. There's still some fear and trepidation because they don't know for sure if that's going to happen. And there's also, I think, an element of fear, which is, do we have the right capabilities and skills in order to execute this effectively? So there's a whole lot that has to change in order for us to get there. But, but I mean, to simply answer the question, this convergence is demanding that we think differently about um, how we communicate, because that's ultimately what we're trying to do. We want to be able to communicate and how my brand differentiates my sales and services from another brand is going to rely significantly on how well I demonstrate to that customer, how yep. well I know them. Well, and to me, one of the most really interesting, maybe counterintuitive examples is, so we, we and of course we see a bunch of clients, um, but we have a, a client that does not do CD on online account origination, right? You have to open a CD, you have to talk to a banker, which I mean, that could be, you call them or go into the branch or whatever. Right. We did a multi-channel CD campaign and found that the cells that were just digital performed just as well as the mail cell. And so, you know, that's one of those counterintuitive things of like, hey, I don't have online account origination. I shouldn't do digital media. Well, no, the, the, the client base wants the product if they're in. And so, that's you right. know, meeting them where they are on Facebook or you know, wherever. And, you know, if you're offering a solution and they already like the bank or they already know the you know, awareness, you know, they can, they'll respond to digital media in the physical store. And, uh, you know, you know, that's one of those, like, yeah, a lot of times people think, oh, I have to use digital media for digital channels, but people are much more complex, right? We, we, we consume media. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look up something, We'll be in Costco and look up something 
uh, search something on our phone and may end up buying it from Amazon right there in Costco. And so, you know, you know, that's a, uh, right. The, so, you know, it's, there's not these like nice, neat swim lanes of oh, digital media with digital sales or offline, you know, you know, so that, that to me is what I think one of the, the, the fascinating uh, things that I thought about when you were, when you were just talking about meeting customers where they are. Yeah. And that's different. You know, I, I, this is a, a, a sidebar, but I equate it to, um, I remember I had this great conversation with a, a old friend of mine and he, he was, he was advanced in age. He was in his seventies and he was talking about how he's like, I raised my boys all exactly the same, but they're, they've all achieved like different levels of success in their life. And he's like, I, I don't know how that happened. He's like, I raised them exactly the same. And what struck me was, well, then perhaps the approach to how you raise yeah. them because they're different people. If you were look, if your objective was to get to a common level of success or a similar level of success, then maybe the the variable should have right. been in the inputs, right? And so I think about that with us too. Our customers, we can segment yeah. them and we can create personas, which I think are valuable, but the ability to get much closer to I know you yeah. and this is aligned for you um, can help us achieve that common level of, of outcome that we want. Well, and so, you know, what are some of the things when you think about the roadmap, you know, all that uh, awesome experience that we talked about, what, what are, you know, what, what are you doing to put a data strategy or, or what's the data you're using to inform the strategy there? You know, and I, I love this again. Like this is this is one of those things that it it's simple in its in the nature of the response, um, but I also recognize as I say it that it's not as simple, right? So I, I I'm having a bit of a, a a bit of a an argument in my own head about it. But I think that the reality is is that at the end of the day, what we're all trying to do, um, and and here's here's the thing that I think is super important and and a really important recognition, which is. We no longer, we as financial, traditional financial institutions are no longer competing only with mm. other financial institutions. And I think most banks recognize that there are entrants that are competitors that are coming into the space, fintechs and, you know, one-off apps and other things that are solving for these unique challenges um, in, in unique ways that feel innovative. And they are in, in many, many ways. Um, but I think the reality is, is that there's two things I would say. One is that we're also competing from a services perspective with mm-hmm. big tech as well. People are having experiences with Amazon, with Apple, with Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, with their social media channels. They're having experiences there that, again, when they go to that piece of glass, they expect the same thing from their financial institution. If Amazon can predict and recommend other products that go with the thing that I just bought, or if Amazon can send me an email that says, it looks like you might need more of this thing in your pantry that you're about to run out of, then why can't your bank do the same thing? Why can't your bank tell you that you're about to face some challenges or there's an opportunity for you to save more money or you might overdraft your account? Like, Why can't they do those things? The reality is, is that we can. It's just, again, the effort to get there is complex. So sim- simple in the solution, complex in the execution. But what it, what it all boils down to, when you, when you actually take a step back and look at the the experience that you're wanting to drive, your competition is, and those who are setting the stage are much broader than just our industry. Because what we're working to do is, how do we get those audiences, those consumers, how do we convey to them that we know them? Because when we know them, they'll share more with us. They'll use more of our services. And we'll actually get them to to expand their relationships with us. And that's the thing that I think we're all fighting for. And so for me, the number one priority is how do we 
gather the data sources in a way that we know who those consumers are and that we can demonstrate to our, our customers and our potential customers that we know them better than anybody else. Because when they understand that, the rest is, is relatively simple. Then it becomes an element of when they trust us, when we're making recommendations, as long as we're not only communicating when we want to try to sell them something, like then we fall into that, you know, every time you shop at a, at a, at a, um, you know, it could be, or not a convenience store, but like at a department store and they're like, would you like to apply for a credit card today? We're not, we're not, we're not blasting about the same thing. We're actually giving them recommendations that make sense. We're giving them advice and guidance relative to their finances. We're giving them warnings. We're helping educate them. We're doing a number of things so that the relationship is such that they trust us. Then when the recommendations are there that make sense, then we're going to be first in line in, in many of those cases. Now, there's a lot more to that in order to help refine that. But the core of it is using as much of the data that we currently have access to in order to demonstrate that we know the customer and then message it to them in the right way. To me, I think that's, at the end of the day, the most critical thing that we can do to be successful. Yeah, yeah. Very, very well said. And yeah, that that's kind of relates to the whole infusion sort of capacity and propensity. You know, what are where are the what are those people that have have a capacity for some need and then the propensity? Right. You know, yep. I mean, because it because the the capacity is a key key part. You know, might somebody may want to save a million dollars, but if they have no capacity to do that, <laughs> that's right. Then they're just gonna frustrate them. So that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stop sending in those those ads. It's interesting you say that because I remember being being in the branches, um, we used to have those, we used to have these little um, uh, stands yeah, yeah, that were displays yeah. that had all of our products in a flyer. And the I, like, I always, re- I always remember the IRA flyer always had old people on it. And I'm like, we're actually not selling to old people. We need to sell to younger people. So maybe we need to change how we approach that. But yeah, I'm with you on that. It's, we got to think about who that is. Well, so, so funny story about the, the, the flyer wreck. Um, so in, in two different banks, I, I saw this pattern. So we did a study at two different banks uh, and said, okay, we have this flyer rack. It's this merchandising. You know, it's like, okay, that's the end cap, right? How do people actually use it? You know, it's right, right. By, the, it's by the waiting area. When people are waiting, do they actually t- go off and take the stuff? And so I, mm-hmm. I, at one point I had a, uh, a researcher go sit in a couple of branches for an entire week. You know, they went, he visited a different branch for five weeks. You're like, yeah, but that's a, pretty serious investment of time and just watched, you know, kind of ethnography. Okay. Just watch what happens in that entire 40 hours of observation. Exactly. One customer actually voluntarily went and took a uh, brochure off the rack. And it's like, okay, so our assumption is that people browse for financial products like they do browse for stuff in the grocery store. But the reality is now, what ha- what happened fairly often is that uh, one of the bankers in a conversation would say, "Oh, well, yeah, okay, let me tell you about IRAs or whatever," and they go off. They would go grab it and go grab one. So that led, and then so that led yeah. to the insight of, okay, well, this is not a self service tool. Let's rethink this, and so it, it actually led to a rethinking of the right. merchandising strategy to recognize that, okay. There is something different about financial services than, you know, retail, uh, and it just was led to you know that 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 <laughs> you made me yeah. think about that with the with the flyer racks, uh, but that's you know an example of you know let's design for the way people behave and yeah. how they how they want to do it as opposed to our just our assumptions. Is it? It's I love that you say that because I think the la- I remember 
I actually pulled a flyer out of one of those racks, but I was at a hotel here in Hawaii because I was looking for things that I was like, oh, let me find some things to do. I was looking for, um, yeah. I was looking for a place to go to do surf lessons. And it, and it was, it was at the concierge desk. So to your point, it's like, what's, I was going to a place, a trusted source for a very specific thing. Um, but to your point, not in a self-service way. It was like, I was going to go get some guidance. And then there happened to be this other resource right. there, but for, for a very different purpose, right? I had something in mind that I was going there for. So yeah, I love it. It's great, great awareness. So what are just, uh, and our, our time's kind of go, going, well, what are some just overall observations or lessons that you think would be helpful to, to other, other bankers out there on their, on maybe on a similar journey? I think it's, um, gosh, there's so many I would say, but I, I think that the most critical thing that I would want people to know is you're closer than you think to achieving these, these strategies of a data-driven awareness of your customers. You know, we, we talk about Amazon does such an amazing job of, of knowing their consumers and providing recommendations. The reality is Amazon only has, has access to the products you buy on Amazon. If they could see the services and the, the way that you leverage um, your, your transactions, right? I mean, people, people's behaviors are represented by how they spend their money in a really meaningful and, and very, um, uh, a very intentional way. And so they would love yeah. to have the insights yeah. that we have access to for our consumers. So that, that's, that's the first thing. Like you are much closer than you think. It doesn't necessarily require substantial investment and a long-term strategy, which leads me to sort of the, the sort of accompanying points to this, which is the, the concept. And we've, I think a lot of people, nobody's yeah. going to be surprised by this, but it's progress over perfection. And this gets back to what you were kind of talking about before, where, you know, we believe that I can only communicate to digital customers in a digital channel. The reality is our consumers migrate based on a number of things. So how do we understand that? And how do we accept that there isn't just a black and white approach to it? It's not like we, we only invest in digital or we only invest in our branch networks. It's about understanding those customers. And that's the part that you're much closer than you think. So give yourself a little bit of grace, but then be very intentional about the fact that you have access to it. It's just about getting the organization to put intentionality and energy and resource behind it. Um, recognize that progress over perfection. And the third thing that I would add that, that again, accompanies this is um, historically, our industry likes to wait and see, especially in times like we have now where when there's a level of um, unpredictable uh, outcome or, or unknown, uh, we, we tend to just wait, we pause, we slow things down, uh, and we just wait and see how it's going to go. Well, the reality is everybody's doing that. You can keep moving with some intentionality and, and, and appropriately so, right? And, and being conscious and, and the good stewards that you need to be relative to your organization and your customers, but make those decisions in a way that allow you to still progress in those very specific and intentional ways. So that then when everything starts to thaw and everybody starts moving again, you've, you've gained that much more headway and, and advantage over the competition. So I, I really put it kind of in those three components. Yep, well said. And then, you know, maybe going back, maybe for our younger listeners, if you went back to, to sit down with your younger self, just starting out in your banking career, what, uh, what advice would you give to the, to the young bankers based on what you know now? Wow, that's a good one. Like, you know, there's always the, if I'm going to be <laughs> funny, right. like, oh, right. invest in Apple, right? There's always that. But I think that um, <laughs> there's, there's an element there. I think that um, there's, again, like there's, there's multiple components to this. And, and I'll say one for the sake of, of young bankers. And this, this is, this is true even of those of us who've been around for a little bit. 
you don't have to know everything in finance. You don't have to have all of your finances in order to be able to give good guidance to customers. You can still help customers and and know that everything that a financial institution offers is going to help a customer in a very basic way, help them save money or make more money. And if you understand that about what you do, and you know that you don't have to have all of your act together in order to be able to give that advice, like that's critical. The other thing is, is that and it aligns with this, which is focus on the customer experience. Continue to meet them where they are. Because as we think about you know that even even back in the day when I was starting as a you know as a teller, that was really key. Is how do we understand this customer so we can make the right recommendations instead of just trying to sell them all the same thing? And as we look to the future, the demand and expectation around how we demonstrate again that we know them is going to be that that differentiator. It's going to be the thing that that matters, and also put the energy around focusing on the customer because if we put our all our energy towards what most financial institutions KPIs and and success metrics are, we have the potential and the risk of losing customers. If you put your energy towards what matters to the customer, the outcome will be the achievement of banks, you know, KPIs and success metrics. So those are the things that we we really need to put the energy and emphasis towards because as those young bankers become leaders in financial services, that's the that's the key they have to be able to remember. Yeah. Well said. That's a great note to end on. What a wrap. What a wrap. <laughs> You know, are we I, doing that rap now? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to pull the 90s it. rap out? And... Do, 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 do the mix. <laughs> not, I'm, oh, no, not ready. I, 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 as, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that was a mistake. So if, that if was somebody not what wanted I to said. check out the award-winning music DJ, is, is, a, is a YouTube video about that somewhere? Or was that pre... <laughs> there is, there is not. Uh, no, there is not. This was... Um, I mean, <laughs> that's right. And probably for the benefit of the world, it's right, probably man. good that those things Well, don't David, exist. thanks again for coming on yeah, Top Quartel. <laughs> Delight to talk to you. And um, oh, thanks again. Yeah, Dan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.